Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, it is a, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies where we get a chance to sit around and talk about some of the you know, news of the day. And, and today we have a special guest, of course. As always, we have Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and today we have with us Brian Bender. Now, if you were reading your Politico magazine over the weekend, you would have seen Brian's new article, The Dangerous and Frightening Disappearance of the Nuclear Expert, uh, which just came out. And of course, it was a, it was an interesting read and it caused a lot of discussion. You, you may have seen uh, posts about it on LinkedIn and people commenting back and forth. And so we thought, I know Brian, he's a friend of mine. Let's bring him on the show. So, Brian, welcome to the Nuclear View. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. And I wanted to open up the show for you. Tell people what motivated you to write this article. I mean, what was your rationale for doing it? And then, of course, what was, you know, what was the sort of the the point of the article in terms of sort of your storyline and arc of it? Yeah, so um, I've, you know, I've been covering nuclear weapons, nuclear strategy, deterrence, arms control, you know, on and off as a national security reporter for more than 20 years. And, you know, the idea for the piece really came out of this uh, Oppenheimer movie that's now in theaters. But, you know, um, when I saw that it was coming out, I had read the book that it was based on American Prometheus. And it just got me thinking, you know, we're going to have this, you know, thriller on the screen about the development of the atom bomb and obviously the story of Oppenheimer and how he came to have some misgivings about it and certainly opposed going further um, in developing the hydrogen bomb and thermonuclear weapons. And it just got me thinking, you know, we're in this much different chapter of the nuclear age now. Um, you know, I'm sure most of the listeners here have, you know, know more than I do, but, you know, we have a resurgent Russia that's modernized its nuclear arsenal, is threatening to use nuclear weapons in a way that, you know, it hasn't in a very, very long time, if ever. We have China that is also building up its nuclear arsenal. You know, some of the estimates are, you know, pretty mind-boggling if you think that by the end of the decade, they could have a thousand deployed warheads. Um, and then, of course, the rogue states, the non-state actors, all of those other potential things that we worry about when it comes to nuclear proliferation. So I really was thinking, you know, we're going to hear a lot about who was in charge at the beginning of the nuclear age, or at least who, who, you know, who was there when they started it, what the debates were about. Um, it would be interesting to talk to some of the experts in and out of government today to figure out, well, who's in charge now? And, and what are we doing about what is a very different set of threats? Some, you know, many of the people I talked to said 
you know, much more dangerous in some sense, more uncertain, especially with new technologies like artificial intelligence and cyber weapons and space weapons and all kinds of things that you could imagine and more than imagine could impact the nuclear equation, um, particularly between superpowers. And so that was really the impetus of it. And so, you know, I spent um, a couple of months on and off. I, you know, traveled a little bit, talked to a bunch of folks to try to get a sense of kind of what's on their minds, what are they most worried about? And perhaps not surprising, you know, one of the biggest themes was we've sort of, we as a nation, as a government, and even as an you know, our international allies have kind of focused a lot less on this threat over the last number of decades for obvious reasons. You know, the Cold War ended and we thought that um, if there was a nuclear threat, it was probably more the terrorist threat, you know, Al-Qaeda getting a, a bomb and setting it off somewhere. And so, you know, it's not often you talk to the hawks and the doves and everybody in between and they all agree on something. And I think in this case, they all agree that whatever your point of view is about the utility of nuclear weapons and whether we need them or don't need them or how we should, you know, go about dealing with them. They all agree that we just don't have the kind of brain power we need, whether it's on the technical side, as we're updating our nuclear arsenal, of course, um, or on the policy side in and out of government. And so, uh, you know, the piece did engender a lot of debate um, and some criticism. I mean, you know, I guess I talked to too many people my age and I'm 51, so I must be ancient. I'm an artifact myself. And the one criticism was, why don't you talk to some more young people? I did talk to young people, but I mean, I wanted to really focus on the people that had been managing the nuclear portfolio for the last X amount of years and they sort of had been in the thick of it and sort of what do they think? So that was kind of the basis of it and how it all came together. So, uh, Curtis, Jim, I'll let you guys kick it off first. Jim, go ahead. Yeah, Brian, first of all, thank you so much for coming on, uh, on onto our podcast. And I, uh, I was delighted to see your article. I think it's, uh, it's much needed a uh, bit of information that goes out to the, to the world to get us start to think about the problem of workforce and career management that supports this important uh, uh, area of nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons. But um, so, so one thing, first of all, you said you were a friend of Adam Lowther. So I will say a little suspect here in, uh, in what you're saying from there on out, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let that slide for now. Um but anyway, I'm, you know, I'm the technology guy here. So I, I work a lot with the technologists and the, and the people at the national labs uh, and the people in the, uh, in the uh, um, Department of Defense uh, research labs, et cetera. And you're right. It's difficult to bring people in that have the, the skill sets. And we're looking at the, you know, the future of us. But I, I often hear uh, people saying, and, and you brought it out in your article, and I'm, I'm interested in your response to this, is they say, well, nuclear weapons, that's like old stuff. And I agree, it's often presented as old stuff, but there's so many new, very well advanced technologies that are being looked at in our, for example, in the national labs and plasma physics and material science and radiological engineering. We had Robin uh, Robin uh, 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 Hutchins uh, here uh, last uh, last week, I believe, uh, and she talked about how she's advancing work in radiation detection. And I guess my point is, all of these technologies are being developed by people that have 
solid technical mathematical physics backgrounds, and then they can apply it to nuclear engineering when it's needed or to nuclear weapons when it's needed. And it seems like we as a country are missing that component, even in our even in our input and the workforce. And I'm curious if you uncovered some of that, because let's face it, when we you know when we started this whole program back in the Manhattan Manhattan um, project. Uh, there were a huge number of physicists, electrical engineers and mechanical engineers that were all prepared to be able to do this. They didn't know that at the time. And they were there and able to make this happen. And without them, it wouldn't have happened. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, a couple of things. I mean, number one, I mean, one of the uh, things that a couple of people I talked to pointed out was this um, – study that was done, I think it was in 2019, and it was funded mostly by the philanthropies that, that tend to focus more on the disarmament <laughs> side of the house, surprise, how surprise. to reduce the nuclear danger. But they looked at the NNSA, the, the National Nuclear Security Administration, mm-hmm. the arm of the Department of Energy, that you know has tools to, some would say, kind of dual but almost competing missions. They build the bombs, so they run the labs. And, you know, and employ all those scientists and physicists and people that you're describing. But they also have, you know, the side of the house that works on nonproliferation and how do we encourage other nations not to go down the road of building an atomic bomb if they don't have one or, or not to expand their projects. Um, and so the study looked at their workforce and it was pretty eye opening to see that, like, their estimates were that, like, nearly half of the workforce by this year, 2023, would basically age out. Um, and, you know, the big question was, are is there enough people coming in behind them to fill those jobs, especially at a time when, you know, if you're someone who really believes in the utility of nuclear weapons and we need them to deter Russia and China from ever thinking they could, you know, blackmail us um, with their nuclear arsenals, you need people who know how to not just build them, but to know if they work. I mean, we haven't tested a nuclear weapon in 30 years, right? So it's a lot of uh, computer know-how and very high-tech modern stuff that we have to know there at NSA to make sure that we actually have a deterrent that's, you know, we can be confident is actually going to work so that the bad guys have confidence that it's going to work. And so that was one big takeaway for me was the NNSA and their challenge in just maintaining the bench, so to speak, of people they're going to need on both sides, building the weapons, but also, you know, the international efforts to try and reduce the spread and the danger. And then I think it was Rose Gottemuller, who I talked to for the piece, former Deputy Secretary of NATO, uh, Deputy Secretary General of NATO, Under Secretary of State for Arms Control, a negotiator with the Russians over the years on some of the treaties she teaches at Stanford now, and she said it's really a challenge to get students that are even interested in national security already to go, you know, a little bit further into the the nuclear space. And she's obviously teaching more on the policy side, less on the sort of hard science. But she said it's just not that sexy or, you know, it's harder to convince them that nuclear weapons are sexy and they are high tech. Everybody wants to go into AI or cyber or, you know, some other policy area in the national security space. And I think that's a problem because all of those other um, disciplines, as I was saying earlier, 
affect the nuclear equation. So um, in many ways, I mean, nuclear should be sexier than it was before, right? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I think a lot of those technical skills, this is Petrosky's opinion, is that a lot of those technical skills are, are easily transferable. A good mechanical engineer can do mechanical engineering for nuclear. A good physicist can do physics and nuclear engineering. And so we, we need those base skills. Now, I think we're missing those base skills. I don't think we're developing them at the rate we need with the many industries that require tech. And I'll even go and, and I'll, I'll let my, my two colleagues here talk about it. Um, I think we have the same problem in the political science and national security world where people are not building those fundamental critical skills that allow them to be good political scientists, international political scientists, understanding international law and international uh, uh, interactions and diplomacy, et cetera. And if we don't build that early on, then, you know, I, I have a, a, a phrase that many people have heard me say, how do you build a 15 year expert? And, you know, and the answer is, well, two ways. One, you need 15 years or you need a better way of getting to that same expertise in 15 years. And either one requires a national level effort of some, from somewhere. And there's some ideas out there, but I was just curious if you've run into that, because th that's what we need. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 60 years old. I've been doing this for 40 years. So I'm a quote 40 year expert. I don't know. I don't like calling myself an expert in anything, but, um, but I do think I have the skill sets and necess necessary to do this. But the end result is, you can't get 40-year expert right out of college. You've got to build that over time. Right. And that gets to the, the social science piece of this. And that was maybe one thing that didn't surprise me, but was really interesting in some of my conversations. And when I was out at Rand in Santa Monica, um, is this, you know, the number of political scientists, you know, sort of left side of the brain people that also were part of that ecosystem, um, a big part of it. Um, during the Cold War, when we were fashioning what is deterrence, because, you know, deterrence is about knowing your enemy, what's going to deter them, you know. And so if you don't have the political scientists um, or the historians like Ed Geist, who's a Ph.D. at Rand, who I spent some time with, who is prominent in the article, he, you know, he's a historian. He's a you know, Russia um, Ph.D. in Russian history who's got a book coming out about AI and nuclear deterrence. So it's not just the scientists who know how to, you know, turn the wrenches and make sure the bombs work um, so that we have a, you know, a deterrent, but it's also all the, you know, all the sort of, like I said, left side of the brain nerds. That we oh, absolutely. I, I, I'm not discounting those. I work with a couple of those. I think one of them is going to speak up now. Go ahead, Curtis. Well, Brian, let me thank you for the article. And, and by the way, I'm one of those left side of the brain nerds. I can barely, you know, balance my checkbook. There you go. So. Uh, I want to thank you for the article and thank you for being on here. Uh, and I, you, know, you got me at the at the third paragraph when you rec, uh, when you uh, referred to the Megadeth into the intellectuals. Megadeth, one of my favorite heavy metal bands, uh, who did draw the the the, the band title uh, from that terminology. Um, I, you know, fascinating piece. Uh, uh, deterrence education is sort of, you know, our our space here. And and uh, when your article came out, and I I, I uh, saw that it was tweeted by our, our NIDS team here, 
you know, to say, hey, uh, we're surrounded by experts. <laughs> We've got a number of expert fellows here. We're ready to engage. Uh, so this is uh, this is great stuff. And I was making some notes while you were answering uh, uh, Jim's boring questions. Um, and uh, and you stole one of my ideas here, which is, is it clearly the world doesn't think that nuclear weapons are sexy. And, um, and, and I think you were, you were really on it there with the sense that there's a stigma, right? Um, especially with the younger generation against nuclear weapons. I think our arms control, uh, uh, I'm sorry, our, our, our disarmament uh, community uh, cohorts have really done a good job of getting after um, um, uh, their propagandic ideas of what nuclear weapons are and, and are not. And, uh, and the Oppenheimer movie just sort of feeds into that. Um, and it, and it makes, you know, this sort of, um, job of educating and, and, and increasing awareness that much harder. But I would, I would ask you in, in the course of your research for this article, um, you know, what can we do to make the utility, um, of, of nuclear weapons, uh, more attractive to this younger generation? How do we link them in and, 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 you know, Deterrence theory is really modern. Deterrence theory is really born out of the nuclear deterrence concepts, and I believe it's applicable to all of the other areas, whether it be cyber, um, outer space, um, uh, deterrence against terrorism, uh, and so forth and so on. And I think with the 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 advent of AI and and technology, which is really getting after and complicating uh, the deterrence formula, I think is part of what we can do to make this area more attractive to those types of thinkers. But I'm interested if, you, if any of the folks you talk to, uh, they, they, they seem to convey a lot of concern, but do they convey any ideas about how we can sort of stem that tide? It's a good question. And I mean, you're so right. I mean, when you think of nuclear deterrence, uh, there is I think a lot of people would agree and the Pentagon agrees. I mean, what do they call it now? Integrated deterrence right. that in other words, it's not just, we have to deter them, you know, nuclear versus nuclear, but there's all these other new technologies and all these other instruments of power, so to speak, that could affect their calculations. And we need to think of it more holistically, but what to do about it, what to do to make it sexy. I mean, I think it's, it's, I think it was Senator John Kyle, who's, uh, on this commission, this congressional commission, looking at the strategic posture, as he put it, um, we're playing catch up because you can't create these experts overnight and nor can you kind of undo a narrative overnight. You know, it's really difficult to change the narrative. And I think I found there's a real difference between people like, I think all of us who remember the cold war. Cause we were, you know, I wasn't grown up, but I was a kid and, I watched Red Dawn and I watched The Day After and, um, you know, was not as aware as maybe my parents' generation that, you know, that the shit might end tomorrow right. if, if things don't go right. But there was a palpable sense that, oh, nuclear weapons, we're on this sort of razor's edge here. Um, and I think that, you know, that went away for a long time. And so I think younger people don't have the same perspective. And so it's a little harder to convince them that, you know, this is important and, you know, we need the best people to go into this. Um, I think the war in Ukraine, though, will help. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's any silver linings to that disaster, <laughs> um, it's that, oh, wow, like 
nuclear weapons are like a thing again. Um, Russia's, you know, waving them around and um, and moving them around into Belarus. I mean, not just talking about it, but actually doing some things um, to threaten the use of nuclear weapons. And so um, it's interesting, though, you know, probably the biggest blowback I got from the piece was from younger people who are in the nuclear space, but primarily those that are in the disarmament space. In other words, what are you talking about, Bender? There's a whole generation of us that are interested in nuclear weapons. But the problem is, and, you know, I'm not going to win any fans by pointing this out, is like those aren't the people we're, we're talking about to manage the nuclear arsenal and manage deterrence. I mean, if you're already coming into it thinking we got to get rid of these things, how do we organize the world to get rid of these things? That's great. And I'm all for that. But that's a very different set of people than, you know, the folks that are going to work at Stratcom or work at Los Alamos or or even at the NNSA on the other side of the house where they're, you know, trying to, I don't know, um, build tripwires around the world so the radiological material doesn't slip out and get into the wrong hands. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think. uh I think even the military is struggling with this. I mean, it's it's sort of mind-boggling to me that more than a decade ago, the head of Stratcom at the time, I think it was General Kevin Chilton, talked about in public speeches about the missing generation, right. as he called it, of nuclear experts. And, you know, I, I guess the alarm wasn't rung, you know, loud enough. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, I know that things have been done within the DOD and the State Department to sort of, build back up the bench. I actually have a friend who works at an alphabet soup in, intel agency who's my age and was like the only Russia expert around for like the longest time. And he's like, now it's like, oh my God, people want me. They need me. They, they want to hear from me and they want more people like me. But for the longest time, even at this agency, there wasn't that many people right. who really focused on, on these kinds of big you know, pure competitor threats. Well, I think to your point, you know, we had a Stratcom commander somewhere in that area that was also somewhat anti-nuclear himself. And, uh, and, and so this is sort of the issue. Oh, you mean General Cartwright? Haas Cartwright? So we, we, you know, we had some, some, some of those kinds of challenges. There seems to be a desire in, in America, at least this is my personal observation, that we really want to outpace the world in everything but nuclear weapons, modernizing the force and these sorts of things, even though they are the guarantors of peace and stability. Uh, and, and I think I would push back on that yeah. a little bit, okay. only in the sense that only in the sense if the public writ large or the, the young generation of smart people aren't as focused on it as they should be. I think politically, I mean, if you look at the nuclear modernization budget, I mean, it's sucking a hole out of the Pentagon budget. I mean, the idea that we're not investing in this is just simply not true. We may not be investing in enough human capital, but um, there seems to me to be pretty strong bipartisan support um, on funding all these programs to yeah. the tune of, I think, $75 billion. Right. But this is catching, right? You know, this is from the procurement holiday of the global war on terror. Um, and uh, where we had a, you know, this, this uh, gap in experience and knowledge that you're talking about in your article that was created because we, we sort of figured this was all done in the 90s, and it turns out it isn't. And so uh, what was old is new again. 
And so we have to uh, go through. There's been some surveys recently that are supportive of nuclear uh, deterrence and the education, the desire to know more. So I think those are all very positive. But I, I thank you for the article. I think it was just uh, uh, a fantastic um, opportunity to sort of tell that story. I would posit that part of our success in terms of why do we not have a whole, you know, sort of a effective cadre of, you know, knowledgeable nuclear experts is in part nuclear weapons success in the sense that, you know, you say we spend a lot, Brian, but, you know, we're spending 5% of the DOD budget. If you go back 50 years, we were spending at least half of the DOD budget. And so you could afford to have, you know, the staff at RAND because there was always funded studies and analysis and you could afford to have, you know, people everywhere. Whereas now, you know, you're, you're, you get 5% of the DOD budget and you're mostly replacing systems that are 50 years old. So they, they lasted longer than they wanted or than they expected. So nuclear weapons were, were like this really, you know, big bang for your buck because they did more than they expected. They're a lot cheaper. We don't spend, you know, we go to a war in Iraq and Afghanistan and we spend $7 trillion for nothing. And, you know, whereas nuclear weapons brought peace for, you know, 70 years and they did it, you know, at least in the last 25 years, they did it quite inexpensively. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was only pointing out the modernization budget. Um, yeah, because I think it does show that there's political sure, support sure, no, for, yeah. for, for playing catch up. Sure, sure. I mean, I think, and I, and I think we're going to hear more of that. This U.S. Commission on the Strategic Posture of the United States, I think it's called, is all the sort of usual suspects you can think of, statesmen and women from both parties who are kind of come out here in a couple of weeks, I think, and sound the alarm in a big way that we are playing catch up um, in a bunch of di- different areas. And you know, and, you know, as much as the arms control disarmament community maybe has helped to drive the narrative on, you know, nuclear weapons, what are they good for? The truth is, I mean, what arms control is left? I mean, there isn't any. I can't think of any. Right. And so I, I, I think in some ways they have just as difficult, if not more difficult of a narrative going forward, because if you don't have a partner like we even did in the Cold War. I mean, as much as we were loggerheads with Moscow, they were willing and sought in their interest to keep, you know, some guardrails on all of this. And they don't seem to think that anymore. And the Chinese don't even know from it. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have to convince them that it's in their interest to do this too. And, and so the arms control people have a tough, have a tough road ahead too. Um Right. So the the bad guys have a vote. That's right. And the deterrence argument that we need these great thinkers for is how do you make that strategy that how do you how do you concoct that strategy to convince China or Russia to play in that arena or to disarm writ large? And that is where the work has to be done. You can't just will it to be. And uh, and so that's where I think we need to develop these thinkers to figure it to figure this out. We all have our ideas of how that would work out. But the next generation is going to have to think about this too, and they're going to have to spend the time, find the interest, and understand that peace is sexy, and we've got to figure out a way to make them understand that. Yeah, and Brian, I, I I really appreciate your comment that it's there's there's some lost in the narrative. 
you know, because we've gone so long without talking about them. And I, I strongly support Adam's view that we've been so successful with nuclear weapons and we've been, and, and nuclear weapons have been such a peacekeeper. You know, we're not building bomb shelters outside of our house and we don't have, you know, practice and training, you know, the duck and cover, whatever you want to call it in our schools to remind people that this is a reality that we face. However, the narrative does need to change. And your, your article starts this. I'm curious what you, where, where you're heading following this article or the feedback you've had, what would you say would be some of the next steps in an article or, or in, a, in an approach? Because we at NIDS, you know, this is, this is our bread and butter. We want to get people to understand the peacekeeping value of these nuclear weapons that we've maintained and managed and are re- capitalizing right now so that we have peace in the future. That's what I want for my grandkids. That's what I want for their grandkids. And that that's the next step. So you've had some feedback on your article. I'd be curious what you, uh, what your take is. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think everyone agrees that there are things that, you know, the U S government can be doing, whether it's DOD, whether it's, at the White House level or other cabinet agencies like DOE. But, I, you know, I do think one of the things I've heard in the wake of the article was that even for those who do want to go into this business, there's a lot of barriers to entry. Um, and there's a lot of disincentives to try and get into some of these agencies or these positions where you, where you could grow and become that 15-year expert I mean, you know, maybe you you have to become that expert. Can, can you give me an example of some of those barriers? I'm very curious yeah, as to what you've come across. Um, it's a good question. I'm I'm not exactly sure what they're talking about. I mean, some of it may simply be the mind numbing bureaucracy of getting clearances and everything like that, as you all know, which takes yeah. a year or two or three. And if you're a young kid coming out of an Ivy League school or or just any college or any you know um, advanced degree program, and you're looking for a job. You know, there might be a lot of other more attractive things that you also can make more money doing. And so I think, you know, you're also competing with, you know, the regular economy as well. So finding new incentives, better incentives, I think, would be one way. Um, I guess I wonder, though, is the career path. So if you want to actually know and understand you know, how nuclear weapons work, you know, how, how they're deployed, you know, all all of that sort of the practical day-to-day stuff, you're going to either work at a weapons lab doing the engineering, you're going to work in the, in the intelligence community, or you're going to be, you know, probably in the military. And then, you know, because most civil servants tend to be retired military, you know, it's sort of a, a normal path. And, and I wonder is are these normal entry points ones that they say, well, I don't want that entry point. I'm not willing to do those things, but I want to get to this sort of more senior level without following this career trajectory. It's a good question. I mean, I mean, but you know, the military has been thinking in recent years of a lot of much more innovative ways to attract young people into uniform because they've had trouble as you all know even meeting basic recruiting levels. So, I mean, maybe the old model isn't necessarily the best model, or maybe there are some new models for getting people 
sort of into the system where they don't have to spend 12 or 15 years as a military officer and become a policy expert or a weapons expert and then, you know, go on to work for a contractor or, you know, a government agency as a civilian. Maybe there are new ways to do that. Um, I also think it's important. One of the other takeaways we have time or, you know, kind of some of the feedback I got, and I think this was James Acton, who's at Carnegie. So, you know, one of the think tanks that obviously focuses a lot on arms control and disarmament and, um, but not exclusively. I mean, his point was also in the sense of the need to be thinking more innovatively about how do we get these people what kinds of people, how do we get them into the system? Because his point was to just take the sort of model of the Cold War probably isn't the right answer either, because you may say deterrence worked, but his point was deterrence kind of worked despite ourselves. In other words, there's a lot of debate about what pieces of deterrence and what combination actually worked, because there was constant debate during the Cold War about what is deterrence and, you know, what should we be elevating versus not? And what's the right potion, if you will? And so I think we're going to need a whole different potion, right? So I think that almost by definition means you need to think differently about who's going to be mixing it and how do we get them all together. Um, it's, it's a good question. I hope this commission will address it. Yeah. I know that one of their recommendations will be about the human capital. So it'll be interesting to see what what they say some of the next steps should be. But I think talking about it, raising uh, the profile of this issue and just, you know, and quite frankly, I mean, what worked last time was just scaring the shit out of people, right? I mean, if you want to change the narrative, you got to make it so they understand here's why you need to care about this and your country needs you because, you know, history doesn't stop. Jim Curtis, last, uh, last thought new is old here. And what's old is new. And I think, um, uh, uh, to your point, there's a lot of things that we need to think about differently going in with the th three, three nuclear powers or multiple adversaries, not to mention a, a largely well-armed North Korea and a probably likely to be armed in the future Iran. And then what other proliferation goes on after that? Um, there seems to be a lot of interest in nuclear weapons around the world. And I think we sort of have to, as a nation, sort of get beyond this uh, self-denial that we, that we should be uh, leading the way uh, to disarmament uh, because no one is following. And so all well, that, well, that's what I fear the most, I think, yeah. is that the abolitionists are going to drive this train. Right. And um, if that's true, you don't have sort of a companion – cadre of people that can manage reality because we have reality, which is nukes right now, um, That's then, right. you know, it, it may be even more, it may get more difficult, not easier. That's right. And what happens then is you don't invest in new ideas because you're thinking that, well, I don't want to contribute to that kind of system. And so I'm going to ignore it. And then it continues to atrophy. And then you're caught in the same situation we're caught in now where we're having to recapitalize it in, you know, an entire force. Um, over a long period of time because it's, uh, you know, because it's just time consuming mostly because we don't have the industry to do it anymore is like we did before. <laughs> you know? So um, anyway, again, thanks very much, Brian. Really uh, fantastic work here. Thanks for having me on. Um, we could go on for hours, I'm sure.
Yeah, Brian. So, so, so to close this out, one thing is, you know, you said there isn't a cadre of people, but, uh, you know, I want to focus back on NIDS while, while, you know, while we're here, that's what we're here for. We've got over 50 contributing members. We've got, we're looking at expanding our efforts as we move forward. And that's part of what we want to do. So there is a, there is a cadre of people. And every time I go out and talk to people retired, even young, young people that are moving into this area, they are extremely excited. I've talked to, you know, one of our analysts just a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, you know, she was saying about how excited she was to be in this area and how, how she looked forward to, to working in as a professional in uh, national defense and in deterrence. So there are people out there and we've got to we've got to leverage them. But I do want to I do want to go back and say uh, and, and I'm going to go counter to maybe a couple things that were said. But I, I really, truly believe that this is a sexy area. And it's not just about nuclear weapons detonating them in Nevada, but. It's a sexy area in terms of material science and plasma physics and understanding how those things feed into the system. And you don't need a clearance to go work at an accelerator. You don't need a clearance to do these other things that will build those skill sets to make someone capable of stepping in, just like we did during the Manhattan Project, stepping in and applying their capability there. And I'm sure it's the same way in the strategy uh, in a sense. And I think that that would be my takeaway, and I sort of got that from your article as you walk you know, walk through because there's just no way you can do it any other way. And last, my my last comment to end on this is China seems to have figured out how to get their scientists interested about this very sexy area, and so nationalism well, I mean, they does just, pay they off. Tell them to be interested in it. <laughs> a gun to the head is well, it's very a little persuasive. Different. They do they do have an advantage. Though. <laughs> I've done that to my kids. They get very interested in certain things when I tell them that's what they're going to do. <laughs> Just uh, thought I'd throw that at you. Anyway, thank you, Brian, so much for this article, for joining us today, and uh, and being a part of NIDS and helping us. Yeah, uh, let's stay, let's stay in touch for sure. Thank Adam, you. wrap us up. Adam? All right. Well, Brian, thanks for joining us. It was a great discussion on your most recent piece. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, Brian – you know, I met Brian when he was at the Boston Globe. I think the first article I ever wrote was one that Brian published uh, 15 years ago or so. And, uh, you know, he moved on to Politico. And I'm sure the headline was something like more nukes. Well, it, it was called uh, Learning to Love the Bomb. That was the first piece I ever wrote, yes. Learning to Love the Bomb. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, uh, so thanks, Brian. Thanks for being here. And, of course, thanks to you, the listeners. And we hope we will... See you on the next episode of The Nuclear View. And of course, as always, think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's The Nuclear View. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. 
You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.